Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. This is Abdurrahman, and you're listening to the Heartwork series on the Qalam podcast. Heartwork is a weekly session at the Ruth Community Space in Dallas, Texas, where young professionals come together and discuss ideas and concepts on how to grow in their religious practice and their relationship with Allah. This particular series is called The Messenger, where the focus of the discussions will be on lessons from the life of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. If you enjoy and appreciate these sessions and these series, then please consider becoming a sustainer of the Roots community space by going to rootsdfw.org slash sustain. We really appreciate your contribution. We appreciate your prayers. And we appreciate you listening to the programming that we put out. Jazakumullah khairan. Wassalamu alaikum warahmatullah. Assalamu alaikum. There we go. All right. Mashallah. I was like, that white chocolate mocha didn't hit as much as I thought it would. No, no. Mashallah, it did. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salam wa ala rasulillah wa ala adihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Uh, welcome back, everybody. Welcome to those who, uh, you know, attend re- regularly, whether it's online or in person. Alhamdulillah, and welcome to those of y'all who it's your first time. Uh, if anyone's still coming in, you can let them know that they can kind of sneak their way through. There is a tiny bit of space over here, over there a little bit. There's like a little, like it looks like some sort of break dancing circle that's about to start back there. Uh, mashallah. Yeah, so we can do that. We can send them through the back uh, door that way, inshallah. Um, that way they can find a spot, inshallah. Um, so last week, we we're going to continue, inshallah, with our, our discussion and our reflection on the life of the Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Everyone should say, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, at least once in one of these gatherings. Um, and so we're gonna, the, the idea behind these, these classes, again, is to bring his story to life. And so that like, we can come here, we can learn, and then we can leave having been inspired uh, in a way that makes this stuff real. right? Because I think a lot of us for a lot of our experiences with religious education, it was all very theoretical or abstract, and it was all very, um, you know, maybe even ideal or pie in the sky, like be a good Muslim, be this, be that, and that's all very good. But a lot of times when you don't know the life of the Prophet Sallallahu you're not sure how to, like, contextualize those statements. Like, what does it mean to be a good Muslim? What does it mean to persevere through difficulty? What does it mean to be patient with God? What does it mean to all these things, these sort of cliches that we hear? Like, what do these things mean? If a person isn't familiar with the life of the Prophet Sallallahu they're going to find it difficult to uh, get to the next level with those statements. And they just kind of remain surface level. And then over enough time, if life hits you with enough waves and, you know, the waves crash upon your shores of stability and you can't handle it, at some point, the lack of depth in your religious knowledge will then kind of become exposed to you. And you're like, I don't know what I'm even doing. What am I even believing in this stuff for? So this, these gatherings are meant to be something that's meant to fortify your soul. That when you come here, you leave here feeling stronger in your faith than you did when you came in. Not because of me. And not because of anybody else, but because of the content that we're looking into, the stuff that we're learning together, alhamdulillah. And we're in a point that's going to give us a lot of benefit, because at this point in the life of the Prophet Sallallahu we talked about last week, there's a lot of persecution. There's a lot of persecution that's been happening. And we talked about one story in specific. So what happened last week, we covered the Prophet Sallallahu made his announcement to his people. He went to the top of Mount Safa, which is right in the the valley of, of, of the Haram, of the Kaaba. It's just a few hundred yards away. If you've been for Omar or Hajj yourself, when you do Sa'i, Safan Marwa, you're like right there. You can see the Kaaba. He stood there and he called upon all of his tribesmen and women and he called them and he said that if I were to tell you that there was an army coming, would you believe me? And remember we said the very beautiful point here that there was no way that an army could have been coming and them not know it because they had systems in place. But they still trusted the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And then they said to him, yeah, we would. 
And he said, well, I'm telling you about something that's much worse than that. I'm telling you about a reckoning that's much more scary than hearing that an army is coming. That's much more real, so to speak, right? And that is the day of judgment. I'm telling you about an impending day, not war, but a day in which you're going to be held to account before Allah. And I want you to know that it's, it's what? Inni nadirun lakum bayna yaday. That, you know, there's something right in front of you that it feels very far off, right? But Allah says in the Quran, غير بعيد, that it's no longer far away, right? So we feel like it's far away, but it's not, it's not actually far away. And when they heard this, when it wasn't to do with their wealth and their property and their city, when it was to do with their afterlife, they instantly all lost interest, right? It's kind of like us. And this is a good reminder for us. The lesson we took last week was imagine the Prophet is talking to you. Imagine he's telling you, like, Abdurrahman, yes, Ya Rasulullah, are you worried about your property? What if I told you someone just broke into your house? Would you drive home? Yeah, I would, Ya Rasulullah. What if I'm telling you that there's something, there's a day that's coming that's going to be much more valuable to you than your home, than your valuables, than even your family inside of that home? Would I instantly lose interest or would I become more interested? And that's an indication of the strength of a person's faith. So Abu Jahl, right, or Abu Lahab, I'm sorry, Abu Lahab was like the leader of the people there. All of them kind of lost interest and then they didn't know what to say. But then he reaches out, he screams and says, Tabbalak, like, may you, may you be destroyed, may you, be, may you uh, perish. Why? Because you wasted our time, right? And this is a very, very succinct summary of how the human being, if left uninspired by the divine, can think of the afterlife. It's just a waste of time. Right? I remember I was watching a documentary on Lil Wayne. Uh, it's a true story. Such a phenomenal documentary. Um, I was watching it. Not a flex. Just a real thing. Just me. Just who I am. Right? <laughs> so I was watching it a few years back, like 10 years ago. I remember I was in college, and I was just watching this documentary on Lil Wayne. It was when I was like, I'm going to be like that guy who knows everything about everybody. So I started with Lil Wayne. So I was watching it, and I remember like this moment. It really shook me when they were they were interviewing him, and they asked him. They were like, "What do you think? What do you think about when it comes to the legacy that you want to leave after you've gone?" And that question obviously is asking you to reflect about your death. So he didn't know. He didn't at the beginning of the. And he's an incredibly smart person. Like incredibly, I know a lot of times like people in the entertainment industry. People who are rappers, like people who, you know, maybe even dress like how he dresses or acts like it's all a show. It's, an, it's a performance, right? He's actually very uh, observant and incredibly smart. You learn this in the documentary. So at first he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, what do you mean my legacy? Like, I'm doing my life. I'm living it. And they go, no, look, after you're dead. Like, what do you think about all of your work? What do you think it's going to mean after you die? And his response was, oh, death? Quote, that's stupid. I don't even think about that. And it's easy to sit there and judge him until you realize that sometimes our actions echo the very same sentiment. Like, I've been thinking about where I'm going to move for my job. I'm th- I've been thinking about, you know, what my next career move is going to be or climbing the ladder or doing this or submitting my, my, my application for my grad program. Or I've been thinking about what kind of house I want to get and what kind of car is next for me or having kids or not. And, like, all of that stuff is fine. It's all permissible. In fact, we should, right? Allah Ta'ala tells us to live a life that's good, but at the same time, not at the expense of thinking about what, what's to come. And so that moment when the Prophet told his people that and they reacted, it's very easy to sit back and be like, wow, look at those losers. But how many of us would be in that crowd? How many of us would stand up and say, Rasulullah, I'm with you? Like, you're right, I get it. Versus how many of us would be quiet and then may Allah protect us from ever being like the Abu Lahabs? That would be like, that was a waste of time. Right? So that was one of the lessons. And the second lesson was that now that the message was public, now that it was public and people who are Muslim were starting to be known as Muslims, and it wasn't just like a 
rumor. Now it was confirmed. We had stories of people who were being um, harassed, abused, tortured even. And one of them was Bilal. So I told you guys that we're going to go over like five or six scenarios. One of the first one, Bilal, who his, uh, you know, he was a slave and his, his, the, the slave owner, Umayyah bin Khalaf, put a large boulder on his chest. And then in the middle of the hot desert, as his back was scorching and as the weight of the boulder was on his chest, he leans over to Bilal, Bilal as Bilal is screaming from pain. And he says to him, just recount, recant on your belief. Just say you don't believe in Muhammad anymore, sallam, and all the pain will go away. I'll stop the pain. And Bilal's response is, Ahadun Ahad, one, one. And he's referring to Allah, meaning that this is what means more to me than even my own comfort. I'll take this pain if it means that Allah is my number one, right? And so that was the moment where we learned, this is, these stories are where we learn what sacrifice means. And there's a couple more that I want to go over. Um, Bilal was the first one. The second one that we want to talk about is actually someone who the Prophet ﷺ had a very close relationship. That is Abu Bakr Siddiq. How many of y'all have heard of that name before? Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr. Okay, it's a, very, it's a relatively well-known name in the Sirah. He is known as the Prophet Sallallahu best friend, the closest companion of the Prophet Sallallahu um, After the Prophet Sallallahu passed away, he was the unit, you know, uh, he eventually became the unanimous choice for second leader of the of the Muslim community, and he's somebody that essentially is seen as the right hand man of the Prophet Sallallahu That when the Prophet Sallallahu made Hijra from Mecca to Medina, and all the groups were being sent two by two, three by three, in order to you know go under the cover of night. Abu Bakr was the one who got the honor of being with the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He was his closest companion. But Abu Bakr, what's interesting about him is that unlike Bilal, see Bilal was on the lower end of the social totem pole. Abu Bakr was on the top end of it. So much so that the Quraysh who were upset that this message was becoming known, they went to Abu Bakr and they're like, dude, come on. Like, come on. This isn't you. We know you. Your family is really noble. You're incredibly, you know, you're respected, you're revered, everybody loves you here. And there was one thing about him, by the way, that was like particularly respected. And that was his knowledge. He had a knowledge base that was very valuable to the Arabs. And that was a knowledge of lineage. I know it sounds kind of strange to us. We're like, what does that matter? Like knowing who your father or grandfather or grandmother were, like what does that matter? But this was one of the ways in which the Arabs preserved not only their, their, their history, but their heritage and their traditions was by knowing their lineage, right? And even now you see like there's industries now, like what's that, that search that you can, Ancestry.com, right? Okay. There's tons of them. There's like Ancestry.com. I, I was going to say Lending Tree, but that's not a family tree. That's a, that's a financial institution. Okay. So anyways, same thing, right? Either way, like there's actual capitalist institutions that have sprung up making money off of people's yearning to know their history, their past, right? Because there is some sort of placement that there's a sakina, a tranquility that you get from some, placing yourself sometimes and knowing a little bit more about where you came from. The origin story. That's why with the Sira class, where do we start? Did we start with the Prophet Sallallahu birth? We started with who? Ibrahim. Prophet Ibrahim, why? Because we have to go back to the origins. So much of who you are depends on things that you had no control over. And so Abu Bakr, this knowledge of lineage, he was like Ancestry.com. Like people respected him because he had the premier and prime, you know, most high, most pristine knowledge of lineage. So they really wanted him to be like not as close to the Prophet as he was. But he was super loyal. He was extremely loyal. His title as Siddiq is actually not his last name. It's a reference to him being so loyal to the Prophet, the most loyal. 
And there's so many stories that talk about this as the time goes on. Like we're going to have moments where we go back to Abu Bakr's life over and over again. But in this particular stage, in this year, the year where the Prophet announced Islam, Abu Bakr took perhaps the most horrendous and, and painful abuse that he'd ever experienced in his entire life. And that was that by associating with the Prophet ﷺ, by associating with the people that the Muslims were, the community that they were, Abu Bakr's protection, his respect, his admiration societally, socially, was lost. And so he would run to the help of the Prophet ﷺ. And you know, one time he actually saw the Prophet ﷺ being um, abused. And when I say abused, I'm not saying like, lightly abused. They actually had uh, you know, a rope around the neck of the Prophet ﷺ and they were choking him out. It was like a gang of people in Quraysh. They would find the Prophet ﷺ and usually it was, in the, it was actually in the valley of the Kaaba. How incredible. You know, a lot of times we talk about making Umrah or Hajj and there's like, you know, there's just so much chaos there and so much. And it's hard to imagine that these are the places where history happened. The Prophet ﷺ is standing at the Hijr of Ismail, this famous, you know, that golden pillar in the, in the, white, in the white marble area. He's praying there, and then Quraysh would just come upon him and just start choking him out and strangling him. So the Prophet ﷺ is experiencing this, and Abu Bakr runs to him, and he basically just tackles the guy who's doing it. He just runs him over. And he tells him that, you know, if you're going to do this to him, you're going to have to go through me first. Like, I'm not just going to stand here and watch this happen to my messenger, to my best friend. So they all turn upon Abu Bakr. And there's a particular person, his name is Utbah, and he had a particular kind of shoe that was custom made. And what was unique about it was that on the bottom of it, it was like a sandal. But on the bottom of it, on the sole, it was made of stone. And so he actually, they, they all pinned Abu Bakr down. And he took his sandal and he started to beat Abu Bakr in the face. And the narration says that you couldn't tell his eyes from his nose. You couldn't distinguish his face. So he's unconscious. And his family, the tribe, they come and get him. And they take him back to his family's house. And they're trying to wait till he comes to. And they're splashing water on him. Everything. I mean, you imagine the whole scene. And finally he comes to. And what are the first words that come out of his mouth? Where is the Prophet? The first thing. In fact, the, the words were so quick to come out of his lips that his family, including his mother, became upset with him. They said, your association with this man is going to hurt you. Pause for a second. How many times have we felt or been told that our association with our religion, following the Prophet Sallallahu is going to cause us distress or pain? How many times has society told us that? Maybe our family even told us that. Or at least ourselves, our own doubts. That if I get closer to the Prophet Sallallahu I'm going to go through a lot more difficulty in my life. That's what he's being told right now. So they tell him, can you please just relax and take a break from your relationship with him? Just just, we're not telling you to cut him off. Just tone it down. He says, no. So they say, okay, we'll talk about this after. You're clearly not in your senses here. Have some water. He goes, I'm not going to drink until I see the prophet so someone's okay. I'm not going to drink until I see he's okay. He can't even walk. So then they pick him up because he demands, and they know that he's not going to eat. He's a stubborn person. <laughs> they take him to the prophet Sallallahu house, and he looks through the doorway, and he sees the prophet Sallallahu standing there. And he jumps off of the arms of the people carrying him and he runs to the Prophet and he hugs him. And they both just start to cry because they went through a very traumatic experience together. And the Prophet looks at him and they're crying because this is two friends who have 
been had been tortured now for no other reason. And Abu Bakr Siddiq tells the Prophet as long as you're okay, I'm okay. As long as you're okay, I'm okay. But imagine for a second that this was the status of this person. This was his status. And this is what he had to endure. And we talked about this last week. Islamophobia is not new. It's not like a new experience for us, right? Islamophobia is something that has existed since the beginning of God's religion on earth, and it definitely existed during the time of the Prophet Like, imagine this for a moment. When we are all in Jannah, say inshallah. Maybe that inshallah is the only reason why you're going to Jannah. Just say inshallah. Inshallah. Maybe there's like, we got like a bunch of sins, and we're like, oh Allah, that one night I just said it was weird, but I said it, right? And you just get it because of that. Imagine the conversation you're going to have with the companions of Mecca. Imagine sitting and talking to Bilal. And he's not in pain anymore. He's smiling. But you tell him, like, your story inspired me. You tell Abu Bakr, your story, like, I didn't know. I didn't want to put my foot in the sink. And he's like, what's a sink? You're like, I'll explain, right? <laughs> I didn't want to make wudu in public. I didn't want to do, I didn't want to wear the headscarf. I didn't want to do this stuff. But I heard about you on a Monday night. It was like 112 degrees. And something happened to me. Imagine those conversations. And these are the things that were occurring to them. The lesson that we take from these stories, from Abu Bakr in particular, is that, number one, notice how he didn't just lay down and take a beating. Right? The Muslim has izzah. We have honor. Right? We believe in, in honor. There is a part of Islam that teaches you to have honor. Not pride, but honor. Self-respect. Appreciation for who you are. Right? Somebody says, you know, What's your name? Abdurrahman. I'm just going to call you Larry. Okay, I'll call you Sally. <laughs> right? It just happened before. Right? Now, I'm not telling you to like, go off on somebody, but have some honor. What's your name? This. Oh, that sounds funny. Yeah, your name's funny too. Right? With a smile. That way they know you're not serious. Right? But you have a little bit of honor for your religion. You have a little bit of respect for it. You don't just become the one that people can pick on because you believe in one God and that the Prophet is the messenger, but at the same time that you have honor, you also have humility to understand that it's all for a righteous cause. It's for the Prophet You're not trying to push people away with arrogance. You're trying to show them that this deen gives us honor. This dunya dishonors us. This deen honors us, as we're going to come to later, inshallah, in this. Okay? And the second lesson is that these tests, these tests that we go through, they mean something. And we'll talk about this at the end. But they have meaning. The next story of a person that I want you to know his name. Musab ibn Umar. Musab ibn Umar. Now why is Musab so interesting? You have Bilal, who is like socially uh, at the low part of the, social, you know, the totem pole, but at the very, high, very highest part of the Jannah totem pole. Okay? Uh, you have Abu Bakr Siddiq, who's kind of like you know, older, um, not, not wealthy, but respected, not because of his wealth, but because of his knowledge in society. Then you have Musab ibn Umair. Musab ibn Umair is like a very, um, like a, a handsome, charismatic, young, well-known, and super wealthy young man. Like super wealthy. So the analogy that I give whenever I teach about Musab, and this might not be you know, the most respectful to Musab ibn Umair, so just take it with a grain of salt. Like, imagine how society sees, like, the Kardashians, right? Okay? Maybe, like, five years ago, okay? Uh, or imagine how society sees any celebrity that people, like, adore. Like, John Legend, right? And his wife. And you see, like, 
Meghan Markle, although I don't know where she is anymore, right? Uh, all these people that people look up to and they're just like, God, they're just so beautiful and their life is so perfect and they're this and they're that. That was Musab Ibn Umar. That was Musab. LeBron James. Everyone's like, oh my God, man, he's got it. It's awesome. Taco Tuesday. Yeah, me too, man, right? Like, me too, every Tuesday, right? Although his are like organic from like the beaches in San Diego and we're just like Taco Cabana. But anyways, right? So Musab Ibn Umar had that clout. He had that Instagram following you're looking for, right? People wanted to be him. They did. He had his clothes. You know, people want to tell you, like, they want to show off where their clothes are from, right? Even in, like, non-traditional clothing, right? They'll say what? This suit was made in, in Italy, right? Handmade in Italy, France. Or these are, you know, these are from here. This is, like, all the rage right now in England. Like, it's, like, London, Paris Fashion Week. Like, this was there, right? It'll be in TJ Maxx in, like, 27 years, right? <laughs> but this was there yesterday, I promise you. Musab ibn Umar had his clothes handmade and stitched and shipped from Yemen, which was, like, a big deal. A big, big deal. And he used to have so much clothing that his clothes used to drag behind him. His cloth used to drag behind him. Now, why would that be interesting? Because what happens when, you're, when your clothes are dragging? What do you do normally? It gets dirty. So you kind of like, you don't want it to get dirty because if you're normal like us, right? You're like, I only have one of these, okay? I would not like to spend more money on another one of these. So I'm going to preserve this as much as I can. He didn't have to have that thought. Why? I got a hundred more. Yeah, I got a hundred more. I don't have to worry about this. I'm, I'm going to throw these away. I'm going to throw whatever I'm wearing away. So that was Musab ibn Umair. Now, what is, typically, what is typically said about people who exist in that kind of ecosystem? Are they the smartest people? Are they kind of like sheltered from reality? This is what we, this is what we think of people in those situations, right? Really wealthy, super privileged, right? Absolute highest echelon of Meccan society. He probably didn't even know what it was to work. He didn't know what it was to like. He had, who thinks about religion when you're in that, in that scenario? Life is good. Life is really good. You don't have to worry about making du'a for what? For, right? But Musab, one of the reasons why he's so phenomenal is because he didn't let his provision block him from seeing Allah. And this is something that we struggle with. Like we turn to Allah in times of need. But in times of, of luxury, in times of provision, like it's a very rare spiritual trait. Very rare. Imam Ghazali writes about this. He says that when the ship is wrecked, that's when people call out to Allah. When the ship is sinking, that's when people beg, right? When the plane hits turbulence, that's when, But how many people versus hitting turbulence or versus when the filet is served in business class? Like how many people are begging Allah in that moment? Right When the plane drops 5,000 feet and everyone's like, oh, Allah, you switch from Netflix to the Quran app, right? You're like, I'm going down reading, right? That's it. Versus like when, when you're sitting, like you get upgraded. How many of us have ever gotten upgraded before? You get upgraded, you sit in that seat, you're there, and instantly you act like you've been there your whole life, right? You look at all these people walking by, you're like, you should try it one time, right? Make some changes, right? Like, you know? And then they come out with the food cart, and you're like, oh, how much is that? They're like, how much? What are you talking about? This is all, you're in business class now. You're like, oh, yeah, 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 right, right. <laughs> I meant how many ounces is at stake, not how much is it. And they serve you, like, how many of us are, like, in that moment where, like, hold on, let me turn to my creator and, and thank him. Let me remember the one who gave this to me. It's very rare. It's possible. Some of you are like, well, I do that. Okay, mashallah. Imam Ghazali says that's very rare. We tend to turn back to Allah in times of difficulty. So the fact that Musab ibn Umar never experienced a difficult moment in his life up until this point, and then somehow he went and searched for the Prophet it shows you something about him. It shows you that he is someone who has spiritual vision. 
He has spiritual yearning. We all have it, by the way. Everybody, everybody's heart is asking them, فَأَيْنَ تَذْهَبُونَ As Allah says. Everyone's heart is asking, where are you going? Only some of us listen. And some of us listen on some days, and other days we don't. Sometimes we wake up listening, we go to sleep not listening. Sometimes we wake up not listening, go to sleep listening. So it's up and down. Iman goes up and down. Faith goes up and down. But Mus'ab ibn Mir shows us what happens to a person when they listen. So he becomes, he, he, first of all, he doesn't become Muslim right away. He hears about this house called Darul Arqam. So it's like the house of this guy named Arqam. Al-Arqam ibn Abi, Abi al-Arqam. That's the name of the guy, right? Uh, and so he's hosting all these halaqats in his house. And the Prophet is teaching. He's like, I want to go there and learn. So he goes. And remember, Mus'ab ibn Umair is a what? A celebrity. So when he shows up, people aren't like, who's this kid? They're like, oh my God. Right? It'd be like if a celebrity walked in right now. If he walked in right now, if LeBron James walked in right now, like everyone would instantly not care about me or the halaqah or anything. They're just like, oh, quick, right? Maybe if I take a picture with him, my life will get better, right? You know? And that's, that's normal human behavior. You see someone that you, you recognize, celebrity, you admire them, so society admires them. So Musa ibn Nur walks in and people notice and the Prophet just smiles. He smiles not because he's like, look, you know how we feel when like, a famous person converts to Islam? We're like, did you see what Lindsay Lohan was holding? Did you see it? It was a Quran. You can sit with us, Lindsay. You can, right? <laughs> My mean girl's knowledge is too extensive. Okay, so... We feel, for some reason, we feel like incredibly happy when we see people who are like, you know, socially celebritized or whatever, like even take interest in Islam. Like they're like, I have a Muslim friend. We're like, got him, right? Rihanna's boyfriend is Muslim. We're like, yes, right? Climbing up that ladder. The Prophet didn't smile because he's like, oh, I got one. He smiled because he's like, look at the heart of this person. That Allah has given them every distraction in the world. Allah has given this person every, what? distraction in the world like literally he doesn't have to do anything and he still is asking his heart's asking where are you going so he goes and sits in the house he hears a lesson the prophet is talking about what you know what, what were those first lessons like the prophet is focusing on what are you who created you what are you giving your life to I wonder sometimes what those lessons might have been like. They weren't like, okay, guys, be Muslim. Now you got to dress like this. Now you, have to, you can't eat this anymore. It started off with like such faithful lessons like, okay, what is your existence? When you wake up, who do you think of? Do you think of your own desires? Do you think of Allah? Do you want to thank him or do you just want more? These powerful lessons. And Mus'ab hears it and he instantly is – I mean he's hit with it. He falls in love. So he goes to the Prophet and he says, I want to become Muslim. The Prophet is super wise. He says, okay – you, I mean, you, you can accept Islam, you can convert, but your situation, dude, if you come out with this publicly, it's not going to be good, right? Your parents are some of the staunchest enemies of Islam, your tribe, everybody. Like, if you say, I'm Muslim, like, it's going to be way too much of a shell shock, which is, by the way, a very wise lesson from the wisest of teachers. What do you learn from that? You tell me. The Prophet is telling Musab, don't come out with this quickly. What do you learn from that? Raise your hand and share. What lessons there? Yeah. Patience. Okay. Sometimes you get good news. You don't got to come out with it right away. Right? Okay. What else? Yeah. Uh, Okay. There's a time for everything. It's not the time right now. Okay. What else? Yeah. He's empathetic and realistic. You know, he's not like, okay, I don't care who you are. You Muslim or not. You in or out. 
right? Ak, no, that's not how it is. He's like, I know who you are. <laughs> I know who you are. And I know that if you go to your family and tell them what you're doing, like, it's not going to be good for you. The Prophet is giving him individualized advice. Okay? Mary, you had something? Yeah, he's caution. He's what we learn from this is that religion and everyone's religious trajectory starts and fits differently. Starts and fits differently. Everyone has the same goal. What's the same goal? Allah. But everyone's getting there in a little bit of a different way, right? Allah says in the Quran. And for those people who struggle for us, that I will or we will give to them. Our paths. We will grant them guidance to our paths. Z. 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 What's that? Singular or plural? plural? Plural. There's multiple paths to Allah. There's multiple paths to Allah. They all have to end up in the same place. They all have to be going the same direction. Right? I can't be going towards shaitan and I'm like, I'm on my own path. Yeah, the other way. No, shaitan has his own path. The Prophet ﷺ once famously drew a line in the sand. He goes, this is the straight path. And then he drew branches off of it, left and right, left and right, left and right. He said, at each of these intersections or tangents, there's a shaitan in the beginning, right? Your desires, the you know, evil influences, and they're calling you off of that straight path. Like, come on, come on, take a break, it's fine. Bucky's, right? Come on, right? <laughs> and you're just like, no, no, I got to go. I'm going to be late for Jummah. And they're like, no, come on, coffee. I got to go, I'm going to be late. I gotta, no, come on. I got to save it for Hajj. No, come on, more clothes, right? And they're calling us off of that. So there is a different path. There's the straight path, and then there's the straight path in the other direction, right? The crooked path. So Musab ibn Umair has all of these distractions. The Prophet says, don't, don't come out with this too strong. You have to go slowly. Now, what ends up happening is that he's praying, or he goes to this house, and he starts praying, right, in his own privacy, and there's a person who knows his family who sees him. Because he's famous, exactly, paparazzi, right? He sees him. What does he do when he sees him? Tells his family. His mom finds out. His mom shackles him, imprisons him, starves him, tells him that I'll end all of this punishment, please. You know, his own mother, I'll end this punishment if you just give up this religion. He says, I'll never give up this religion. He runs away, actually, during the when the Muslims left Mecca for some safety. They went to Abyssinia. We're going to talk about that next class, inshallah. He goes with them. Then he comes back because he hears that things are okay in Mecca, but they're not. He gets imprisoned again. And finally, when he actually gets freedom from his mother's imprisonment, his tribe imprisoned him, he walked out of the house and he was wearing very basic clothes. And his uncle looks at him and his uncle says, what are you wearing? And he goes, I'm wearing my clothes. Leave me alone. I'm leaving. I'm going to be out of your hair forever. You won't have to deal with me anymore. He says, no, I don't care about that. That's ours. Take that off. So he leaves his house. This is the same person that had outfits for days, clothes dragging behind him, shoes from imported from Yemen, and he leaves in the, in, in, almost wearing next to nothing in the middle of the streets of Mecca. Whenever I hear about Musab, and by the way, the companions... When Musab died, later on, he died in a similar way where he didn't have enough cloth to cover his body. You know the companions, when they heard that, they all started crying. Abdurrahman ibn Auf, all of them, they heard Musab died and we couldn't cover his body with cloth. 
they said something very powerful. They said, Allah has accepted Mus'ab because of the sacrifices that he went through in this life. And they said, we don't know if God has accepted us because he's only given us things. Don't think too hard about it. It might break you a little bit. But understand what they're saying. They're saying that if God tests those who he loves, and this guy was tested through the frame, and we have just had an easy life, then maybe he's been accepted and I haven't. Whenever I think about Musab, subhanAllah, I think about Abdurrahman, is it really that hard to wake up and pray? Like, has God asked you to give that much? Has God asked you to leave your house with no a penny to your name, a house that you can stay under, a meal for, for, your, for your belly? Like, Allah has not asked me to do that. Allah has not put me in a situation where I've had to. And some of us, maybe Allah has tested us in very harsh ways, right, in difficult ways. And I'm not taking that away from us. But whenever you compare it to what these people went through, it instantly brings a sense of what companionship to your heart, mentorship. Like you see them and you're like, I can do this. So the next time you're asked to give up something you love and you find your heart being irritated because you love it, but you know it's better for you, just think of Musab Mumer. You don't think he loved his clothes. You don't think he loved his shoes. You don't think he loved the food and the servants and popularity and celebrity. And look at where he went. Why? Because one who has gained Allah has gained everything. And one who has lost Allah has lost everything. Doesn't matter what their bank account looks like. Right? Doesn't matter what that person's bank account looks like. We'll do one more. Actually, we'll do two more. We'll do three more. Okay. All right. So there's the last three. The next person is Uthman bin Ma'zun. Uthman bin Ma'zun. Now, interesting about him is that it's a short story, but it's really powerful. So what we talked about last time, last time we said that if you're in Arabia at this time, if you had the, the, the claim, if a tribe claimed publicly to protect you, no one could touch you. Even if you weren't Muslim, even if someone had beef with you, if a tribe was like, yo, I got Najah's back, if anyone went after Najah, they're going to come after my tribe as well. Okay? So this was one of the ways that people, that Muslims existed in this time was very difficult, but they had some sort of connection. Right? They had some sort of connection to somebody. So Uthman bin Ma'zun, he had a connection to a man named Al-Walid ibn Al-Mughira. And Walid gave him protection. So Uthman's walking around and people are kind of like, you know, like calling him out, trying to like come at him like, hey, come at me, bro. You're Muslim, right? Like, you know, treating him poorly, harassing him. But he's under protection, so they can't lay a finger on him. If they lay a finger on him, it's done. But then one time in the evening, he was attacked randomly. And, and very quickly. And the person quickly attacked him and they actually injured one of his eyes. They injured one of his eyes. And so Al-Walid ibn al-Mughira, and the reason why the attack happened, I apologize, I skipped this part. The reason why the attack happened is because Uthman, in one of his moments of like strong faith, he was like, I don't need your protection. I have Allah's protection. All right, so he got like real, like he got real with it. And Walid's like, no, 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 like, I know you have Allah's protection. He wasn't Muslim, by the way. Walid was not Muslim. He's like, I know you have God's protection, but like, I'm also going to help. Uthman's like, I don't need you, bro. Right? I'm on my own. And so he gets attacked, and Walid comes back to him, and Walid says, Uthman, if only you had stayed under my protection, like, if only you had, like, not renounced my protection, you would have both your eyes healthy, man. What's wrong with you, man? Like, he was kind of, like, you know, chastising him. And Uthman smiled and he looked at him with his eye injured. And he said to him, nah, dude, the healthy eye is jealous of the injured eye. He goes, the healthy eye is yearning to be like the injured eye. Why? Because of the cause that this one got injured for. 
I wish the eye is saying, I wish I could be in the position of the other one. Look at what this person attacked you for because you were close to Allah. Anyone here ever has something bad happen to you before? All right. <laughs> it's like, yes, I'm, my heart is too heavy to even raise my hands. Yes. Yeah, you've had bad stuff happen, right? What's the hardest part about stuff that happens that's bad? What's the hardest part? Sometimes it's, it's that it's out of your control. What else? Yeah, like learning from it, right? And that's kind of the lesson, like that it's out of your control. The hardest part from any situation that's bad is being removed enough from it in the pain that you're experiencing to see and ask yourself, what can I gain from this? So hard. You know, it's so hard. Like you get a flat tire and you're just like, what can I gain from this? And you're sitting there and you're just like, nothing. I can't gain anything from this. You know, like it's literally. But the most pious of people, they find lessons in every place. Like every place. You know, I'm with my friends who are really pious, mashallah. They order something at a restaurant. The wrong thing comes out. They're like, it wasn't in my risk. I'm like, come on, man. (laughs) Imam Ghazali himself, right, is eating lunch with me on a Thursday. But subhanAllah, imagine being in that mindset. That everything that happens, you get injured, you get injured, and you're like, this is doing something for me. I tore my ACL a few years ago. uh, And when I tore my ACL, meniscus, I had reconstructive surgery, all that kind of stuff. And you know what's crazy? I couldn't make sujood. Sujood is the position of prayer where your head is on the floor. I couldn't prostrate for like four, three, four months. Because I had to be like no weight bearing and all that kind of stuff. And I tried to like be really like savvy with my balance and i ended up breaking the toilet seat long story right but i do all this thing the doctor's like you need to relax right you need to relax like you need to just be off of that leg completely so he told me no weight bearing on that leg nothing and sujood is a position that like you got to kind of maneuver back and do subhanallah i'll tell you like we've all been we've all heard the event for prayer gotten the notifications on our phone we've all been like oh man i gotta pray let me figure it out so we've all dealt with the struggle sometimes of like finding the motivation to pray until God takes it away from you. Until God does something where he's like, nope. You can't pray the way that you're used to now. Now you have to pray. And it was Ramadan. I got surgery the day before Ramadan. And so the entire Ramadan, I'm sitting in chairs with like all these chachas, like uncles. <laughs> and everyone's just judging me. They're like, look at this, like, this, you know, he has, yeah, the Bisharam, like, you know, he has no... <laughs> He has no shame. It's like, you know, look at it. You know, the guy's like, I have seven kids and I'm this and I'm standing and I worked all day and I did that and I'm standing. You're just sitting, right? And he's like, show me the MRI. You know, he's like, <laughs> they want to see everything. It was basically Hassan. Hassan Mirza was there, right? And subhanAllah, I remember, and I'm not telling you this to say anything about me. Like, I, I have a heart that's sick. I need a lot, a lot of Allah in my life. But I remember having a realization that moment. It's, oh, Allah, I'm never going to miss a sujood again willingly. Like, you've taken it from me. And I can't do it. And you miss, you miss. It's so weird. You miss the feeling of putting your head on the floor. It just doesn't feel the same. Prayer does not feel the same. You're sitting in a chair and you're praying and you're like, it just doesn't feel the same. And you start to feel emotional and you're like, what if I can't? So I went back to the physical therapist and she's like, okay, what kind of, uh, what kind of quality of life do you want to have? And I'm like, do you want to play basketball again? I'm like, yes. Okay. I'm still going to go pro inshallah one day. I was like, but... Ask Sheikh Omar, so that man, we ball every weekend together, ask him. But I said, more importantly is I have to learn how to pray. 
I have to be able to pray again. She's like, okay, what's that look like? I showed her a video, and she's like, oh, no. Because that's like a physical, a physical therapist nightmare is getting – because it's not just regular flexion. It's actually like extreme flexion. She's like – so she told me, she's like, are you ready for this, what you're going to go through? And it was that moment where I was like, yes, I can't not do this. I can't not have prayer normal in my life because of what these past eight weeks, six weeks have taught me. Literally, y'all, I had to be biting a towel because she was like crunching my knee back. It was like screaming into a towel, right? Screaming. My wife's like, yeah, childbirth is like 100 times that. (laughs) Very empathetic, right? Okay. But looking for the lesson of what happens. So what happens now? What happens now is that when I'm too lazy to pray, I remember the time when I couldn't pray normally. And it sometimes it jolts me, it wakes me up. Look at the moments in your life where Allah has tested you and see what it's taken away from you. And ask yourself if you would ever give it away willingly. Okay? We'll wrap up now because there's still three more stories. But I want to you know, make sure that we give it its due right, inshallah, and it's 8.30. We ask Allah Ta'ala to give us inspiration from these lessons. We ask Allah to make these companions pillars for us in our lives so that whenever we struggle, we can look to them for what they went through. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to not test us beyond our ability and to not test us more than we can bear. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to purify us from our mistakes and to pardon us from our shortcomings. Uh, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give us a closeness to the Prophet sallallahu that makes all trials and tests feel worth it. Amin. Barakallahu feekum, everybody. Jazakum Allah khairan.